Now, as we come together for our time of worship in the Word, uh, we've been in some familiar places. A couple of weeks ago, Dr. Bealey uh, took you through kind of an overview and an outline of the Passion Week, and one of the things that he did was to bring a slideshow that was uh, infinitely more engaging than mine, because he brings those great pictures and uh, those really firsthand looks at places, and I'm sure that a lot of you have said, you know, I really wish that, well, we know that Matt's a hopeless case when it comes to jazzing up the slideshow, but we wish that we would have the opportunity to see those things, to really engage with those places. Well, today, I want to announce that you have an opportunity to be there firsthand. Our church will be taking an Israel trip in the fall of this year, October 21st through 30th, and we would invite you to consider coming along. If you have ever wanted to go, this is going to be a great opportunity to do that as a church family uh, with an expert who has been there multiple times and who is also a member of our body. That's a really unique thing uh, that we have. I'm excited that one day I will finally get there and maybe I will get there with you as my first time. That would be incredibly encouraging to me. I would love to have you there. If you're even remotely interested, uh, if you have any questions at all, come to February 11th, that information meeting. February 11th, that's a Friday evening from 6.30 to 8 p.m. We'll begin to walk through what it will look like to make that happen. That uh, Coming to that meeting is not a blood oath to go on the trip. It is merely a first step. If you can't make that meeting, we would still encourage you to consider coming. It is just uh, the first step in moving us toward that direction as a church. I'm very excited about it. Um, I know that there are people there here that have expressed interest, and we want to give you all the information to make sure that you can plan on being there and joining us later this year. So to put that uh, in your plans, as it were, put it in your calendars, and hopefully we'll see you there February 11th to take that first step. Now, would you turn with me uh, to the book of Matthew, chapter 21, and we're going to carry on. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, uh, so I want to get into it fairly quickly, but if you remember the few weeks leading up to this, we've talked about Jesus' authority. Uh, there has been an increasing demonstration and display of his authority and a clarity that hasn't even really been there in the past. Uh, uh, there is a pointing toward his identity as the Messiah that is more crystal clear than it has ever been, and yet now we see an increasing divide. Uh, the chief priests and the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, uh, the elders of the people are challenging him uh, with specific regard to that authority. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, if he has the authority to do what he claims to have the authority to do, then they lose their position altogether. Uh, they recognize that if he is right, it costs them everything. And they come and they ask him about the source of his authority. And last week we saw that Jesus doesn't even answer them, not to dodge the question, but simply because they aren't even willing to deal with the truth. He turns the question, well, then where did John get his authority? And because they don't answer, he won't answer. They aren't even equipped to deal with whether John was sent by God or not. How in the world would they be equipped to deal with whether the Messiah was sent by God or not? So he exposes them completely. And as we go through the next couple of weeks, Jesus tells three parables in a row. We'll deal with the first two today. These are stories, ultimately, of the king's condemnation on those who reject him. I want to begin by reading Matthew 21, starting in verse 28. Matthew 21, verse 28, this is what God's word says. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first, and he said, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son, and he said the same. And that son said, I, go, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. 
But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Let's pray. Lord, uh, by this point in Matthew, we've gotten used to the kingdom being something other than what we would anticipate. Um, Lord, it is in our human nature to want to work our way back to you, to believe that somehow we can be good enough to earn or even to demand your favor and entrance into your kingdom. Lord, continue to show us uh, that we're not, we're not worthy, we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not, we're not well-read enough, we're simply not holy enough. And yet you've made a way for sinners to enter into your kingdom, coming humbly and dependently like children, coming through repentance and faith, coming through the completed work of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that as we read these stories, as we hear these parables, that our hearts wouldn't be content to be entertained by stories, but that we would see the truth of who you are and what you've called us to. Lord, I pray that everyone listening would respond rightly and surrender their hearts and their lives to Jesus, who is the Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your truth. And then, Lord, through the power of your Spirit, help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We need your help to do all of this, and so we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Like I said, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to move through stories, and everybody loves stories. They engage us, they captivate us, they illustrate for us. Uh, from the very earliest parts of our education, stories are used to teach us. I can go back and I can ask someone what I preached on about a particular passage, and they have no idea, um, but they will remember a particular illustration. Occasionally, they'll even remember what it was illustrating, which is tremendously encouraging. But whatever the result, stories move us in our hearts and our minds and help us to grasp things, and we know that Jesus is the master storyteller, but not simply for the sake of telling stories. As we go through these next week, these stories are pointed. These stories have a drive to them that is even distinct from the parables that we've seen earlier on in Matthew. But as we begin today, as we look at this first story, we're going to see a story ultimately of obedience, a story of response. What does it mean to respond rightly to the call of God? What does obedience look like? And before we dive into the details of that story, I want to remind us about the parables in general. It's been a little bit since we've been through places like Matthew 13, so what are the point of the parables? Remember, the parables are not just ways for Jesus to wake up the crowd. They're not just ways for him to be engaging for the sake of being engaging. Parables are designed to illustrate spiritual truth. They are simple stories that take very few or sometimes quite a few elements, but they come from common life, from everyday things, from very understandable themes, and they're used to illustrate a spiritual truth. Now, if you remember, uh, back in Matthew 13, when we did go over those parables, and those parables in Matthew 13 that dealt specifically with the kingdom, its nature and its coming, what it would look like, those parables had something of a double edge to them. On the one hand, the parables were used to illustrate truth. To those with eyes to see, to those with ears to hear, to those to whom it had been graciously given by the Father, the parables make spiritual fuzziness clear. They take complex themes about the kingdom and they give them a sense of clarity where the disciples are able to apprehend and understand, to grasp what Jesus is talking about. But there's another side to the parables, and that is that the parables will also obscure truth from others. They reveal truth to some, they obscure truth from others. To those that it has not been given in Matthew 13, to those that the Father has not given it to, these parables are not helpful. 
The people understand the words, they understand the themes, they understand the picture, but they have no way to connect that to the spiritual truth that's being illustrated. And so the parables are a blessing to some, and they're actually functioning as a judgment on others. Now, these parables that we're coming to, particularly today, have some distinctions. They're not dealing directly with the kingdom. Next week we will. But these two parables today don't deal directly with the kingdom. And the other real distinction is by the time we come to the end of these two parables today, uh, there is no confusion about who and what Jesus is talking about. These aren't neutral. These are pointed. Uh, These parables do not do anything to diffuse the tense situation that was building last week. They actually further it. These parables don't distance us from the cross. These parables push us toward the foot of the cross. So let's move into the parable itself and first look at the picture that Jesus illustrates here. Matthew 21, verse 28. What do you think? Now, before we even start, it's interesting to note how quickly this conversation has changed. The religious leaders come to Jesus with all the authority that they can imagine in their mind, and they demand that he answer the question, and he has completely turned this on them. Uh, He has absolute authority over this situation now, and it's clear because he's not just going to let them off with what we went over last week. He's not just going to say, I'm not going to tell you about my authority. He's going to continue to drive this conversation toward exposing their hypocrisy and their failure. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first, and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. So we're introduced to a man who's a landowner, and this landowner has a vineyard. It would be common, especially for the male children, to go and work in the family vineyard. They had an express interest in how that functioned. It was their inheritance. It was their provision. And so uh, nothing unusual here. Go and work in the vineyard. But what is unusual is the son's response. And he answered, I will not. Okay, that's not normal. We're not just supposed to laugh that off and say, boys will be boys, and you know, whenever I ask my kids to do anything, they don't do it either. That is supposed to be unacceptable. That is not a good thing that just happened. Uh, The Old Testament had some very sharp things to say about rebellious children. This is rebellion against the Father. This is a serious thing, but it's not the final word. But afterward, he changed his mind, and he went. After a time of reflection, that son realized that that's not the right answer. And he goes and he does what the father asked him to do. Now the attention shifts to the other son. Verse 30, and he went to the other son and he said the same thing. So again, he asked this son to go work in the vineyard and he answered, I will go, sir. That's the right answer. That's what we should expect. That is what any reasonable son would do from a reasonable request for his father. Son, go work in the field. Absolutely, Dad will do, but he did not go. The son initially responds positively, but then for whatever reason, and we're not told the reason, for whatever reason, he doesn't go out and he doesn't work in the field. It's a simple picture. It's a simple story, and Jesus closes it with a very simple question. Which of the two did the will of his father? No subtext, not a trick question here. Which one did the will of his father? And we could all answer that. By the end of the story, we would answer the same way that they did because we've all either raised children, been around children, or been children, and we know that obedience can happen sometimes haltingly. Some of us have told our child, clean your room, and we get every reason not to. I can't. I don't want to. It's not that bad. I can still open my door. I can see my floor like right there and right there. So clearly, it's fine. I have other things to do. I'm too busy 
But then after some time and some argument, they relent. They decide that living in filth is not the best idea in the world, and they go and they do it. And on the other hand, we've all also been in the situation where the last thing out the door is, clean your room. This has to happen before I get back. Make sure you clean your room. And from the couch, you are told, absolutely, I'm going to do it right now. See you when you get home. And you get home, and the room is just as it was when you left. And there's a thousand excuses. The TV show uh, got me sidetracked. The video game took longer than expected. I went in there and the mess was so depressing that I fell on the floor in a heap and couldn't even begin. Whatever the reason is, there's a failure to carry out what they initially said they would do. And so the question is simple, which one actually obeyed? Well, the first one did. This isn't hard, it's not difficult. The answer's not shocking, but the point of the story is shocking. The point of the story, the place that Jesus takes them to is jarring. Let's look at the rest of that verse. They said, Jesus said, which of the two does the will of the Father? And they said, the first one. And I would imagine that after what happened last week, they answered fairly quickly and fairly confidently. Remember, this is all one narrative. This is all put together. Okay, this isn't, they come back a week later. They have just gotten finished telling Jesus, we can't answer your question. So when Jesus brings this to them and says, which one did the will of the Father? My guess is they were excited to say the first one did. See, we're smart. We can answer questions too. But then Jesus goes on to say, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And that would have shocked them, and it doesn't shock us enough. Because we know the scope of the story, we know the whole sequence of Matthew, and we've seen what they've done, but to hear that would have been unthinkable to them. Really, to anyone who had any concept or any sense of what Yahweh was like, for any respectable Jewish person, those people, tax collectors, prostitutes, those are the others, those are the outsiders, those are the untouchables. Those are people you just didn't associate with. But that feeling is multiplied by a factor of 10 when it comes to the religious leaders. Those people weren't just unacceptable. Those people stood condemned. It's hard to fathom the hatred that they would have had for that group of people. Jesus gives us that parable in Luke about the Pharisee and the tax collector who comes to pray. And what does the Pharisee say? Pray, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, especially like this tax collector over here. God, thank you for not making me like him. A wretched sinner who's not even worthy to be here in your temple praying. That was what that that hypocrisy and the pride that 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 parable centered around. These people had no place in the public life of Israel. These people had no place in the public corporate worship of Israel. And they were sinners. The idea that the tax collector and the prostitute had access to the kingdom of God is theologically unthinkable for them. But Jesus says they are going into the kingdom before you. How does that happen? How do people that are clearly sinful, deeply sinful, have access to the kingdom? It's not because God suddenly changes his standards. It is not because God says robbery from your own people is no big deal. 
It's not because God says to despicably violate the one flesh union of marriage is now okay with him. How is it that that happens? Well, the fact is that when they're called to change, when they're called to recognize their sin, when they're called to repent, they do it. They do what that first son did, and they change their mind, and they move toward obedience. And now Jesus moves on, and he attaches that directly to what we were talking about last week with the preaching of John. John ties into where we're going with this parable. I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven before you. How is that happening? Verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. John came preaching righteousness. He was not a frilly uh, health and prosperity preacher out in the desert. He preached a hard message of repentance and righteousness. You boil John's message down, and what did it come down to? Repent, turn, change, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew, we saw him say, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is not just a mind change. This is a total change that leads to a different response in your life. John came preaching that repentance. What happened? You did not believe him. It wasn't that you didn't get the message. It wasn't that you didn't hear. It wasn't that you weren't exposed to the truth. It's that you heard and you refused to believe. Understand that. The second son in this parable is not disobedient because he didn't get the father's message. He's not disobedient because he was ignorant about what the father asked him to do. He was disobedient because knowing he refused to respond rightly. He heard it and he rejected it. They heard John. They simply did not believe. They heard John call them a brood of vipers. They heard John tell them that their worship was unacceptable. They heard John condemn their hypocrisy. They heard John talk about the judgment that was coming. And then they looked at their lives and they said, we're fine. Of all people, surely we don't need to repent. Surely we don't need to change. They're blind to their own sin. They're deaf to the, own, to the warnings that would come that called them to change their mind. But what happened? But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. You know what happened when the dregs of society heard? You know what happened when the most despicable, worthless human beings, from their point of view, heard this call to repent? You know what happened when John looked at the tax collectors and prostitutes and said, you are wicked and you need to repent because the king is coming? They heard John and they said, you're right. We're bad. We failed. And they repented. They turned. And they moved toward obedience and change. But it gets even worse for the leaders. Because maybe they could be excused for doubting John initially. I mean, a guy shows up in the desert wearing camel skins and eating locusts and crying out about a coming judgment, that's not the resume you look for in your next great prophet. He's not the one they would have naturally assumed would be speaking for God. So maybe, maybe there's some slack for that initial hesitation to hear what John had said. 
But what happened? The end of verse 32, and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. It wasn't just that you rejected John once, you rejected him continually. And as the tax collectors came and repented and changed, as the prostitutes came and repented and changed, as sinners came and repented and changed their lives, you didn't rejoice. You didn't stand in wonder at the fact that people's hearts were being turned back to God. You didn't begin to consider that maybe John was exactly who he claimed to be, and maybe this kingdom was coming with all the severity and all the holiness that he said it was. Maybe the right response would be to obey. You continually rejected him again and again, and you're still in a state of hardened rebellion and rejection, although you've seen the change that God has brought about in these people. You continue to reject John, and when you reject the forerunner, you reject the Messiah. If you reject John, you will continue to reject Jesus. So that first parable is a parable all about response. It's a parable all about obedience and what that looks like, and it's a clear condemnation against those religious leaders. But Jesus isn't done. He's going to continue to peel back the layers of their wickedness and expose them. And this time, he's going to give a parable in this second story, the parable of the tenants, and it's a story of rejection that starts in verse 33. But before we jump into that parable itself, don't get too comfortable in Matthew 21. Keep a finger there. I want you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 5. Because we're given a preview of some of these themes in the Old Testament that Jesus is going to call up. And if we don't understand where these things come from, then it's going to be harder for us to understand the nuance and the, really the importance of what Jesus says moving forward. Isaiah, great book that we're familiar with pieces of and very unfamiliar with most of. We read the Christmas verses, unto us a child is born, son is given, government will be upon his shoulders, virgin will conceive and bear a son, we know those. Isaiah 53 pierced for our iniquities and for our transgressions by his stripes were healed. We know those portions. Uh, We know Isaiah 6, the throne room where the angels cry out, holy, 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 but then there's a lot of gaps in between those places. Well, in Isaiah chapter 5, the Lord is speaking of his work among his people. Let's read Isaiah 5 verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my song of love concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. Now what this is a picture of is absolute provision. The landowner has established a vineyard and done everything necessary to make it fruitful and profitable. It is put in the right place on a very fertile hill. It is cleared of stones, debris, thing that was, things that would hinder the growth. It's planted with choice vines. It is the right product that has gone into the ground. There's a watchtower in the midst of it for shade and for defense. There's a wine vat in it so that you can take those grapes and produce wine. This has everything necessary to be a profitable place. And so the expectation is that it would yield good grapes, that it would yield fruit in the right season, that it would bring blessing and profit to this landowner. But... At the end of verse 5, it yielded wild grapes, sour grapes, worthless grapes. And so verses 3 through 6 talk about what's going to happen between that owner and the vineyard. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. This is the Lord's vineyard. 
What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done for it? The answer is nothing. There was nothing more that could have been done. This vineyard was given everything it needed to produce. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Why did it fail to produce a crop? It wasn't anything on the landowner's side. It was all on the vineyard. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge and it will be devoured. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled down. I'll take those defenses away and it will be overrun by anyone trespassing, by any animal that wanders through. All the protection is going to be removed. Verse 6, I'll make it a waste and it won't be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns will grow up. It won't be pruned, it won't be weeded, it won't be cared for. I'll also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. I'll take away its water. So it's a picture now of judgment, of destruction on this vineyard for its complete failure to respond to what the owner had done for it. And verse 7 is the interpretive key for this whole passage. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. This thing that belongs to Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, this vineyard is Israel. What about the fruit? What do they expect to find? It's the house of Israel and the men of Judah. They are his pleasant planting. And what did he look for? At the end of verse 7, he looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed. I expect justice and I get bloodshed, murder, corruption. I expect righteousness, but behold, an outcry, clamor. Justice and righteousness, but instead bloodshed and distress. Now turn back to Matthew's Gospel in Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, verse 33, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And all of those things are meant to bring them right back there. Jesus is not just telling another story about a vineyard. He is using common elements, specific quotations from that place in Isaiah to bring up consistent themes. He is intentionally moving them to an understanding that the Lord has ownership and that He has entrusted a people with producing a particular result. Even before He goes into the details of this parable that expand on what Isaiah says, their hearts and their minds are drawn to this place. We are not. We're separated by time and culture and certainly a lack of familiarity with the Bible. They weren't. They knew exactly what he was referring to here. So let's look at that picture that he develops there in Matthew 21. Let's look at it in a little bit more detail. All of those familiar things are there. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it. He does what is necessary to protect it. He digs a wine press, something that would press the grapes into wine, that would bring profit. He builds a tower, but then there's a new element here, and he leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. This time we're told that the vineyard has been leased to tenants while this landowner goes to another place, because if you were a tremendously wealthy person and you had multiple business ventures, you wouldn't be able to devote yourself full-time to all of them. So he has this vineyard, and instead of working the land himself, instead of being there immediately on site, he leases it out to tenants. People with knowledge about how to bring a crop from immaturity to maturity, how to bring in fruit in its season. And when you leased it to them, they would tend to the vines, they would bring in the harvest. 
And then they would take their living from the land and give the rest to the landowner. This is, again, a common theme. They would understand exactly what this picture was. But now look at verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The harvest is here, and so now the master sends a servant to collect what is due on the land. This is normal. This is natural. This is not a shock. All of us pay our rent or our mortgage at the same time every month because we know that the rent comes due. We don't open that envelope and say, what is happening here? I had no idea. No, this is an expected progression of what is going to happen. They knew that when they leased the land, that in the proper season, they were going to have to return what was owed to the landowner. Look at what happens in verse 35. And the tenants took his servants, and they beat one, and they killed another, and they stoned another. This is serious. This is unjust. This is shocking. It's not just that we're going to be a couple of days late on the rent. This is murder. It gets worse. Verse 36. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. This should not sit well with us. We read it like a newspaper, like some, just some boring thing that we've passed over a hundred times. Understand the escalating tension here. He is sent to get what was owed to him, and there was murder that took place. And he sends more simply to get what is owed to him, and they do the same. They kill the servants that go to collect what is rightfully his. The outrage is supposed to be building. And now the story takes a shocking turn, an unexpected turn, and ultimately a messianic turn here that really focuses on the identity of Christ. Look at verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. Because dealing with a servant is one thing. Killing a servant is despicable. But when the son comes, he comes with the authority of his father, and that is far different than any servant. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. If you reject the son, you reject the father. And notice this, they don't just make a mistake here. This is not mistaken identity. This is not a momentary lapse in judgment. This is not, they thought this was a burglar, and so they acted in self-defense. They know exactly what they are doing. They know exactly who they are doing it to, and they know exactly why. This is the son. They know it. And if we get rid of him, then all of this that we're just leaseholders on now, all of this that we're just temporary tenants on now, becomes ours verse 40 when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes what will he do to those tenants see the owner's not going to let it go he's not just going to ignore what's happened he's going to come now one more thing what would have been just you know what would have been just for the landowner to show up in full force after the first beaten messenger 
after the first rejection of the first servant sent to collect what was rightfully due to him, that landowner had every right to come and take back by force what was his. All through this uncomfortable and painful story, there's mercy. But now mercy gives way to judgment. And so Jesus says, what ought to happen? Guess what? It's another easy answer. Even these guys get it. What should happen? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. Of course, that's right. That is just. That is reasonable. For killing the son, he will take the lives of those responsible. He will remove what belonged to them and he will put in those who will do what is right. Now, their quick answer shows that they understand the basic outline of the story, but the fact that they are so quick to pronounce judgment on these tenants shows that they completely miss the point. Well, what is the point? The point is, of course, that this is not just a story about vines and servants. This is a story about them and their rejection of the Messiah. Look at Jesus' response in verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? And that is a provocative question that is pointed because of all men, they have read the scriptures. Have you not read in the scriptures? Or have you read and still had no comprehension? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's a quote from Psalm 118. And I hope that that sounds more than a little bit familiar because it was just a few weeks ago as Jesus is moving into Jerusalem and what we call the triumphal entry that we went over that psalm. Because when Jesus says, have you not read this? It's even more pointed because not only had they read it, but they'd sung it during this time of year. Again, this psalm is on their hearts. It's on their mind. It's on the lips of the people. If nothing else, they have just heard the people cry out quotes from this psalm as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They've heard it on the lips of the children in the temple. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. All of those reference back to Psalm 118. The whole contemporary part of this, the whole surrounding context is a familiarity with this psalm. And Jesus says, have you not even read it? In that psalm, Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And it goes on to say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Guys, have you ever even read that? Because I'm here. Jesus is here and he's come in the name of the Lord. And what do the builders do to the cornerstone? They reject it. They don't just misplace it. They don't just choose to find another one. They intentionally and specifically reject the cornerstone because the cornerstone defines the rest of the building. It aligns and defines everything else in the structure. And if you reject the cornerstone, then you can construct the building however you want. 
But this story is not about human rejection or acceptance. This story is not about man's ability to overrule God. This is the Lord's doing. Even the rejection of the cornerstone is not an accident. Even the rejection of the cornerstone doesn't point to the fact that God has to be flexible and adjust to human failure. Even the rejection of the cornerstone was prophesied. Even the rejection of the Son Himself actually points out to the sovereignty and the omnipotence and the omniscience, the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-designing and sustaining nature of God who will see His plan worked out in human history. Not in spite of their rejection, but even through their rejection. Unless they miss the force of any of this, Jesus goes on to say, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. It immediately goes from abstract to absolutely specific. You. You saw the Son, and you will reject Him. You are going to do exactly what those tenants did. Recognize the Son, willfully reject Him, and kill Him. And just like those tenants, just like you knew exactly what ought to happen to them, you too are going to experience judgment. You will lose the kingdom. And they could not fathom that. Because they have the temple. How could they lose the kingdom? They live in Jerusalem, the city of God, God's chosen place among all the nations. How could they lose the kingdom? These were the elders of the people. These were the chief priests of the people. These were the scribes, the Pharisees, the rabbis, the learned ones, if anyone had access to the kingdom, surely it would have to be them. But it's going to be taken from them and given to others. What others? Well, fascinatingly, in the immediate context, who is it that finds the kingdom? Tax collectors and prostitutes. Sinners who you can barely talk about those things that they do in polite society are going to be the ones that find the kingdom. But this goes to an even more broad answer than that. Because this is a warning, and it is directly and specifically pointed at those religious leaders. But there's a much larger warning here, because they're not the only ones listening. Remember, Jesus is teaching within the temple complex, and there's a crowd gathered. This is a word of judgment against them, but this is also a word of judgment against Israel as a whole. Because not only have the religious leaders rejected the Christ, but by and large, so is the nation. What's happened? Well, they've heard the teaching, and the way is narrow, and few find it. Those crowds are quick to gather, but they are slow to repent. This warning is even reminiscent of kind of what John the Baptist was saying in Matthew chapter 3. Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. This speaks to the reality for anyone listening that your genetics do not earn you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. You enter the kingdom by approaching the king on his terms. And what is he called for? Repentance. Humility. And that you bear fruit. You read through Matthew and you come to the end and we all know the end. What does Jesus say? Go where? Into all the world. You, Israel, 
were exposed to the brilliant light of your Messiah, and you rejected him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But do you know who responds? The Samaritans. Romans. Greeks, barbarians, people that wouldn't even be considered to ever have access to the covenant promises of God are now brought into the kingdom through the work of the Christ. And this thing called the church is built up. Now, does this speak to a final rejection of Israel? No, it doesn't. I don't think Matthew leans that way. And I certainly don't think the rest of the New Testament bears that out. But this is a strong warning for anyone and everyone who rejects the cornerstone. Look at verse 44. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Will you attempt to apprehend and to overcome this stone? It will shatter you to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, if the sun comes against you and falls on you in judgment, it will crush him. It will grind you to powder. There is no overcoming the cornerstone. And although they were seeking to arrest him because they understand exactly what he is saying, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They know who he is talking to and what he's talking about. And although they're seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They can't do anything about it yet. But isn't it fascinating that in a passage that centers on authority and questions the authority of Jesus, Jesus proves to have absolute authority over the situation, and they prove once again that they are utterly fearful. As we close this week, what do we see? Building tension. The tension that continues to build and move us toward the cross. These are stories that don't uh, entertain. They're stories that illuminate the wickedness of what it means to reject the Christ. These are stories that show just how deadly serious it is to miss the sun. The king has come. The son is here. And the question is, what are you going to do with him? Just two very quick things for us to think about as we go. First of all, what does obedience look like? We hear that first parable, and many of us run the danger of being very much like the second son, of hearing what God calls us to do and saying, I'll get right on it. We know the Bible stories. We know the sermons that we have to listen to. We know the podcasts that we listen to. We know the books that we read. We even know the Bible. We read that. And we read and we hear and we comprehend all of that and we say, that sounds exactly right. Lord, I know what you have called me to do. And then we go about the course of our lives and we continually say, I'm just not going to do that. For a thousand different reasons. It's too hard. It'll cost me too much. It'll make me too unpopular. I'll lose this opportunity. I'll lose this pleasure. I just don't think God got it right in that situation. A hundred different reasons that we give lip service to our obedience to God and then we practically fail to actually respond in obedience. And the second thing I want us to just be struck by is the mercy and justice of God. How many times will God have been justified in my life 
in simply exercising his perfect justice and judgment on my sin. And yet how kind he is to give us his word that exposes that sin, to send people into our lives who call us back to repentance. And how often do I bristle at those things? But make no mistake, justice is coming. For today, God has given us the mercy of time. While the Son waits to return to consummate his kingdom, the gospel continues to go out. And perhaps there's someone today who God has been gracious to give you time to repent, to respond to this king who is worthy of our obedience. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we don't assume that we've got it all together. I pray that we never experience and expose the kind of arrogance that often lies in our heart that says, I know the truth and I'll get around to it at some point. Lord, if we're honest, we know what you've required of us. We know that you call us to honesty and integrity. We know that you call us to lives of purity. We know that you call us to a different kind of role in our marriages, in our friendships, in our relationships. You've called us to be different kind of students, different kind of employees, different husbands and wives. Lord, you've called us to be different in all of these areas. And the problem is not that it's unclear. The problem is just that it is hard. And in our flesh, so often, Lord, we say we believe, we say that we want to do what's right, but we refuse to obey in the long run. Lord, will you break our hearts? Will you convict us of that? And will you bring us to the place of repentance and obedience? Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are faithful to walk in the way that you've called us to. Not because we're strong enough or good enough, not because it gets us a gold star, but because, Lord, you're worthy of obedience, and obedience leads us into your great blessing. Lord, make us more like you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.